This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Where people are killed and abused in warfare and violent conflict, artifacts of cultural heritage are often destroyed and mistreated as well. Indeed, in his World War II era efforts to promote the then novel idea of genocide, the Polish lawyer and activist Rafael Lemkin sought to codify the notion that genocide was both personal and cultural. What's come of his efforts? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're fortunate to have with us today Irina Bokova, formerly the Director General of UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Social, and Cultural Organization. She's a former parliamentarian in Bulgaria and former interim foreign minister of Bulgaria. She's also served as Bulgaria's ambassador to both France and Monaco. She wrote the foreword to Cultural Heritage and Mass Atrocities, a recent volume by James Kuno, formerly head of the Getty Museum, and Tom Weiss, my predecessor as director of the Ralph Bunch Institute. Thanks for being with us today, Irina Bokova. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Torpy, for inviting me to participate in uh, in this debate. Uh, I'm I'm extremely happy to continue uh, what uh, Jim Kuno and Tom Weiss have started uh, have started uh, with this uh, publication. Um, and I would say that um, it is so important to continue nowadays uh, because we see we see what is happening in the world uh, uh, with the war in Ukraine, uh, with conflict, uh, and um, we should not uh, think that um, heritage and culture is just a collateral damage uh, in, in a war, but it should be an essential part of our response uh, for to crisis, uh, to conflict, uh, and to appreciate more its role for peace building and for security. Absolutely. So you've just written, as I said, the uh, foreword to this book, Cultural Heritage and Mass Atrocities, which has come out from the Getty Museum uh, and was put together and edited by uh, James Kuno of the Getty Museum and Tom Weiss. And it's about the relationship between these two phenomena, cultural heritage and mass atrocities. But perhaps we could start by clarifying what exactly cultural heritage means and why it's a matter of contestation. So why do insurgents and other violent actors, what do they get out of uh, destroying cultural heritage? 
Well, I think that um, currently we have a better understanding of uh, what heritage is in, and how it uh, affects all of us, uh, to what extent it is uh, closely linked uh, with our identities. Um, I have always thought that um, heritage uh, protection and uh, everything that um, the legal framework is doing uh, uh, for heritage is not just about the past. Definitely, it's about what type, what kind of past uh, story we want to bring to the present, but it's also about the future of, uh, of what kind of societies uh, we want uh, we want to have um, and um, strictly thinking uh, heritage of course it's about uh, beautiful architectural works uh, it's about uh, monumental sculptures it's about uh, historic cities uh, buildings uh, it's about the work of men and women of course of nature uh, but it is also the intangible heritage we should not forget that there is the other side of uh, the uh, living uh, experience and traditions that we build also we bring from one generation to the other. And the third pillar of heritage protection, of course, is our documentary heritage. So these three pillars are very well, I would say, uh, uh, codified and managed uh, within uh, UNESCO, the expert community. Uh, And nowadays, uh, we see that um, whenever... uh, a heritage site uh, uh, is somewhere uh, destroyed. Uh, we have this notion of uh, of a common heritage. Uh, we are all kind of a diminished, and we also feel very connected to that. Um, and 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 I think uh, nowadays in a globalized world, interconnected world, um, but very fragmented. I I, I would like to say uh, questions about heritage uh, and identity come uh, really uh, with all its importance uh, strongly sometimes into the political agenda of government of uh, international organizations and others. Thanks for that. But maybe you could take some examples. I mean, a lot of people uh, remember the Bamiyan Buddhas that were destroyed by the Taliban in its first uh, control of of Afghanistan in in the early uh, part of this century. Uh, Can you tell us about that case and maybe some other cases so that people have a clearer idea of what exactly we're talking about? Yeah, I, I think it's important indeed uh, to, uh, to to show uh, indeed uh, with some very concrete examples, you're right, that uh, the destruction of the Bamiyan Buddhas by the Taliban was such an atrocity that kind of woke up uh, to the importance of protecting diversity. Uh, the Bamiyan Buddhas uh, were uh, Buddhas in a, in a, in a sea of uh, another religion, uh, but also um, to the extent that we have really to uh, protect them, to uh, look at uh, what are the risks, the dangers, Uh, And let me just turn a little bit uh, uh, to attract the attention of the audience to the uh, existence of the legal framework. Actually, UNESCO, the United Nations uh, Organization for Education, Culture, Sciences, and then Communication came, uh, uh, was created in order to uh, bring peace, to to build peace differently. Uh, It's it's a very interesting history. It was created, uh, the idea came uh, uh, in 1942 during the Second World War, when Allied forces uh, were invited to London by the then Minister of Education of the UK, Ellen Wilkinson, and uh, try to uh, mobilize the intellectual community of the world and to see uh, how really uh, education uh, and culture, further on, and sciences can be uh, can 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 create such a platform for cooperation international that finally they'd bring peace. Actually, in the UNESCO constitutions, it's written that if war starts in the minds of men, it's in the minds of men that the defenses of pieces should be built. And gradually, this type of uh, uh, cultural cooperation, which built, uh, I would say, also strongly on some of the foundations of the 
League of Nations, although the League of Nations at that time failed um, in preventing the Second World War, but there were intellectuals, they were already talking about the role of culture and peace. And when UNESCO was created, the first uh, agency within the United Nations in 45, uh, the main, one of the main activities was indeed to uh, create a legal framework uh, of this. And the first convention definitely was the 1954 convention uh, prohibiting destruction of um, uh, institutions of culture and education uh, in, uh, in, in a conflict, uh, uh, in a war. Um, and this is part of the Hague Humanitarian, Constitu- Humanitarian Conventions. Then gradually, the thinking uh, started to evolve. Um, countries uh, started uh, to appreciate more uh, historic buildings and others. And um, uh, there are two, I think, um, landmark um, events or, or um, something that happened indeed um, in the 60s, which brought about uh, the adoption of the uh, 1974 Convention on the Protection of World Cultural and Natural Heritage. Uh, The one was the um, very huge international campaign for the protection of the uh, Abu Simbel temple and statues in Egypt when the Aswan Dam uh, was being uh, projected uh, to be created and there was a whole mobilization of the world with the financing, with experts to move these statues uh, on a high level, on a plateau which are there now majestically uh, sitting. Uh, And the other uh, I believe it's also a strong influence uh, uh, from the the US side Uh, it was uh, the great uh, environmentalist, uh, Russell train, who uh, was created the World Wildlife Fund, which still exists, is a, is a very important uh, international non-governmental organization to protect uh, nature. Uh, and his um, strong commitment uh, to uh, and the tradition, the US tradition into protecting of national parks, um, he he convened um, a very important uh, conference at the White House with the Nixon uh, presidency, where the idea about this common heritage emerged. So from different, there were different building blocks that brought about the understanding that uh, there is something common in our history of humanity, and this should unite us, not divide us. Uh, And in order to do that, is that we should appreciate, we should know the other culture, we should respect the uh, monuments, uh, sites of the other culture, and we should consider them as ours. So this is the notion about outstanding universal value, which underlines any, every single inscription on the World Heritage List. I see. So, um, I mean, it seems clear that there's this sense that um, cultural artifacts and, and culture sort of more generally is part of this idea of genocide. And I guess the question then is, you know, what exactly is gained for an insurgent, for an opposing government or whatever? What, what, what do they get out of, you know, destroying the Bamiyan Buddhas or things like that? What's the, well, what's I... the advantage? 
Yeah, you know, I, I think that if we if we accept this understanding that uh, uh, this these sites uh, belong to all of us, we all respect them. All right, as I said, they may uh, pertain to a to belong to a different uh, uh, religion, uh, to a different civilization, to a different period, but uh, but they're all belonging to us. Uh, and and uh, I'm I'm very proud of UNESCO that uh, it could uh, really build this type of. Uh, uh, um, intellectual understanding and solidarity and uh, and a common feeling about it. Uh, and also the other side of it is that we already know that this, uh, this um, heritage sites, uh, historic uh, buildings, monuments and others, uh, they uh, are part of our identity. Uh, can you imagine uh, Egypt uh, without uh, the pharaonic uh, monuments uh, there? Uh, or you go to uh, Machu Picchu to Peru and you uh, don't see the majestic also uh, uh, buildings and the legacy that has been left uh, uh, from the um, uh, Incas and I can continue this long list uh, and uh, these extremists uh, understood very well that when they destroy these monuments they hurt all of us. They really create in us a sense of uh, not just of an outrage but the sense of uh, uh, missing link uh, with our common history uh, and on the other side uh, I think the, the other message that they wanted to give us, uh, either with the destruction of Buddhas uh, or uh, uh, in the Middle East with Daesh, uh, when they destroyed uh, Palmyra and uh, and some of the other uh, iconic, I would say, monuments uh, uh, in the Middle East, the early, uh, I would say, stages of the building, the emerging emergence of uh, uh, human civilization uh, there, they wanted uh, to send a message to us that um, this uh, is not uh, that I would say um, this. This is not important for them. Uh, they they deny uh, everything that we have built uh, upon it. Uh, that they do not uh, see this um, as once again uh, a common humanity, and they just want to uh, build a, a a desert where only some kind of exceptional uh, understanding. I would I wouldn't say even ideas. Their ideas uh, will will exist. By doing this, though, they want to denigrate people. They want to denigrate communities. They want to deprive communities of their history. And I have seen this uh, because you asked me about uh, examples. Uh, I think a very telling example of such a destruction uh, definitely was the case in Mali where uh, extremists uh, uh, occupied the northern part of the country, uh, including uh, Timbuktu, uh, Goa, two very emblematic cities uh, uh, in, uh, uh, in, in this part of Africa, which represented uh, uh, empire, uh, and uh, uh, Timbuktu was considered uh, some 10th century ago as um, the most flourishing city of Islamic culture, of education. There were uh, universities, uh, there were uh, studies of learning, and until this very day, hundreds of thousands of manuscripts keep partly in private families, uh, and these manuscripts represent 
the one of the best, I would say, pages of the Islamic thought, of philosophy, of medicine, of culture. Some of them transmitted even the old Greek and Latin uh, knowledge that uh, we know from history that it is through uh, this uh, uh, transmission that nowadays we we know about uh, some of some of this uh, uh, Greek uh, and, and Roman knowledge, uh, and and by occupying this and destroying this um, and destroying the Muslim. Uh, and, and destroying uh, some of the mosques that exist there, they wanted indeed, uh, and they did hurt the local communities, which had this not just as a pride, but it was part of their own identity. And um, I, I remember visiting uh, with the French president, Francois Hollande at that time, after the French troops uh, with the other African countries, um, uh, they, they created the force and they pushed away the terrorists. And we, we went to Timbuktu and we stayed uh, in front of uh, the destroyed uh, uh, mausoleums of their saints, uh, which were venerated uh, for pro- more than 10 generations. Uh, and I literally could see the pain in this community. And then when we restored them under the auspices of UNESCO and with the traditional um, the traditional way, the, the local uh, masters, and um, they were uh, then, of course, um, uh, in, a, in a very special way uh, inaugurated, I went once again. I just wanted to see, I wanted to meet uh, the local community. I wanted to meet the people and to see what is they, their feeling after that. I was so emotional. I thought I'm giving back these people their own identity. This is what is uh, all about when we speak about heritage. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So, I mean, maybe you could talk a little bit about, you've described some of the uh, international legal architecture that's in place to try to stop these things, to uh, punish those who engage in destruction of cultural property. And it's always a little hard to say exactly when one has had a success in preventing something. Uh, But maybe you could talk a little bit about what you think is the significance and effectiveness of this international legal architecture. You know, it's, uh, I think it is important uh, because international law matters. I think uh, rules, uh, international rules matter, albeit we live in a, in a world where uh, unfortunately many many of these rules are uh, questioned, uh, to put it this way. Uh, but, but all this matters. Um, I think what is uh, important, uh, what was important in those days and which is still very relevant in my mind, um, it is uh, uh, just to make uh, a link uh, between them with the legal uh, framework uh, and also the uh, other political security measures uh, with the uh, decisions that are taking in the uh, uh, security sector, so to say. Um, And this is where um, uh, putting the close link between humanitarian uh, security uh, and cultural area, so to say, getting out of the culture box, uh, because this is not just a matter of a few um, experts or uh, international uh, civil servants or others, but it's 
it's really a matter for how you respond to a certain conflict, how you how you make then the peace building, how you organize it. Um, I, I do remember when I first uh, started talking uh, uh, after the uh, Malian disaster, the Timbuktu and then um, Syria and Iraq, and I started talking uh, about the need to protect the heritage. Uh, I, I was even uh, criticized at some time, which was saying that, uh, you know, people are dying uh, and at the same time you're speaking about uh, a building, you're speaking about a monument that is uh, there. And I try to explain and to convince that uh, you should not make a choice that they're so closely linked. This is not just bricks and stones that are there. This is something that is linked to us as humans, uh, as our human history, as our identity, uh, and also that it is a part and parcel of security efforts and peace building and peace efforts then. So it was difficult at uh, the beginning, but I think gradually with time, with a lot of efforts and, uh, and advocacy and very, very, I would say, concrete examples uh, in, in that area, we could convince the uh, political community that um, they should embrace this uh, also uh, as, as an important uh, uh, piece of, of agenda uh, on, 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 on their table. So um, with the first uh, uh, attempt started with the Security Council, when we worked with the Security Council, and uh, uh, it started with the financing of terrorism because the destruction of uh, cultural heritage and the looting of these sites, which at some point took, uh, um, I would say, on an industrial scale. We were monitoring this uh, from the uh, satellite uh, pictures there, and you could see really see the damage done in the disaster. Um, and financing of, of terrorism was done uh, 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 not only through uh, drugs and, and arms and this, but also through this trafficking. So um, the first was the Security Council adopted uh, an important resolution in 2015, uh, where they included against the, uh, the curbing, the financing of uh, terrorism, where they uh, included uh, some paragraphs uh, on the need also for the um, protection of heritage sites and to stop the illicit trafficking with antiquities. And uh, on that basis, we started working with uh, with Interpol, uh, with the uh, security people in, in, in many countries, and we created with the customs authorities, and uh, we started exchanging information, creating a common data uh, um, uh, uh, data sites, uh, and and all this helped immensely uh, to stop this uh, this uh, I would say uh, uh, disastrous uh, uh, trafficking uh, of, of objects of antiquities uh, and of art. Uh, then. Of course, there came several other um, important works uh, that were done with the support, once again, of the United States, where the uh, International uh, Council of Museums, uh, with the support of UNESCO, uh, works. It works for a long time, for, for decades already, but in this particular uh, moment, they focused on uh, the so-called red lists. These red lists are lists of uh, objects uh, that are prohibited uh, to cross borders, uh, to pass to be exported, uh, particularly in this case from uh, Syria and Iraq, then Libya was added also there. Uh, and gradually a momentum has been built uh, around the importance of uh, putting these three together. 
And um, I think that the uh, most important, of course, until this day, resolution of the Security Council uh, was adopted unanimously in March 2017, uh, Resolution 2347. It is the only such resolution dedicated entirely to the link between protection of heritage, humanitarian, of course, efforts, peace and security. And this gives a lot of, uh, I would say, gave a lot of uh, opportunities to build on that and to create partnerships. Uh, and to expand this work. And, and what is also very important uh, to really, uh, uh, that this understanding between link, link is, is very firmly embedded nowadays uh, in, uh, in, in our understanding why it matters. And I think this is also uh, one of the great merits of this publication of Mass Atrocities and Protection of Heritage, because it is exactly uh, dedicated to in the, all the different, of course, uh, areas with specific approaches and uh, and debates, still a lot of debates uh, on some of these areas are dedicated to examining this link. Because um, when I went to the Security Council, when the uh, resolution uh, 2347 was adopted, um, I was thinking a lot of uh, what should I say to the members of the Security Council so that really they understand uh, what what I'm talking about, and I chose a famous, of course, um, uh, words of uh, Heinrich Heine that he said in 1822, the famous German poet who said, "When they burn books, they will, in the end, burn humans too." And I think this is probably as relevant as it was then, very relevant today. Indeed. So it sounds like there's a lot of, uh, you know, legal architecture in place, a certain amount of momentum, um, you know, towards achieving these sorts of goals. But what do you think are the biggest kind of obstacles to greater success? And, you know, who opposes these kinds of things? Well, I, I think that um, nowadays, of course, uh, as I said, um, there is um, disregard of uh, some of the um, uh, legal instruments. Uh, there are rules uh, nowadays are not respected, uh, not only, I would say, uh, in this area. Um, I, On one side, I, I'm tempted to say that there is a much higher understanding, uh, even the fact that the International Criminal Court um, has uh, convicted uh, one of those who destroyed, uh, was part of the destruction of the mausoleums in Timbuktu, was brought to the uh, International Criminal Court. We worked with the chief prosecutor at those times. We put uh, two legal teams together, and it's the first time that we proved that uh, this really infringed upon. It was a, a crime, uh, and uh, it fall within the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, and there was uh, already the famous case of Ahmadi, who was convicted of destruction of, of heritage. Now, um, I, of, of course, on the other side, uh, I would say that it is uh, one such case, um, albeit the uh, ICC, the International Criminal Court, last year, after a long years of work, adopted a, a special framework on how to implement um, some of the provisions of the Rome Statute uh, when it comes to destruction of heritage. But um, it is, uh, I would say, more and more politically difficult to do what we have done at those times today. I would just give an example that um, in 2013, uh, we could achieve the inclusion for the first time in the peacekeeping missions of the United Nations, the need to protect heritage. I'm speaking again about Mali. We included, uh, 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 and it was uh, once again a breakthrough.
through because usually the Security Council is reluctant in enlarging this, these areas. But the atrocities were so big and so obvious that they included it. Unfortunately, a few years later, in 2018, it was taken away from the uh, mandate uh, of the uh, UN peacekeepers. But I think the, this created already a precedent. And nowadays, um, we know that in very many of the trainings of UN peacekeepers, heritage protection is part of their training, which did not exist before. So there is a momentum. It's not, a, 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 I would say, a straight road ahead. But uh, nowadays, we are much, much more cognizant and more sensitive uh, and more, much more alerted that uh, this uh, is, is a crime. It, it should not happen. Right. It's a fascinating development. And we really appreciate your taking the time to give us an overview of the background and, and uh, of the sources of that momentum. And all of this is on display in the, in the volume Cultural Heritage and Mass Atrocities. Uh, edited by James Kuno of the Getty Museum and Tom Weiss, uh, formerly of the uh, Ralph Bunch Institute here at the CUNY Graduate Center. I, I want to thank Irina Bokova, former head of UNESCO, for sharing her insight about the relationship between cultural heritage and mass atrocities. Look for us on the New Books Network and remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Osvaldo Mena Aguilar for his technical assistance, as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks very much for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. International Horizons.